Well, if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we began a journey through the book of Acts, and having considered introductory matters, and then two weeks ago, Luke's prologue in verses 1 to 5, we have in fact been cleared for takeoff, and we are barreling it down the runway. In fact, today we've got liftoff, figuratively in our case, literally in Jesus's. There is a great deal in our passage this morning that warrants a sermon or many sermons, certainly warrants further explanation. You remember that Jesus for 40 days now has been out of the tomb and he has been making various appearances and disappearances and he's been spending time with his disciples, among others. And for 40 days we learn he was teaching them, Jesus was, concerning the kingdom of God. And this is one of those themes in the book of Acts, one of the primary themes of the book of Acts, indeed the whole Bible, and it needs very careful articulation and explanation, but that's going to have to wait for a future time as we make our way through the book. This passage also speaks of the promise of the Father, which as you know is the giving of the Holy Spirit, and there is much to say about the giving of the Spirit, and that we will expand upon again beginning especially in chapter 2. In our text today, there is reference to the mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which needs to be clearly unfolded and spelled out, and we will have an opportunity, lots of it actually, to get to that. This morning, I want to open up this text considering another issue, and that is the issue of the ascension Next week, we will tackle the significance of it. I had hoped to get there today, but that proved futile. Um, you remember, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that the ascension is the dividing line. It is the hinge. It is the point of demarcation that differentiates all that Luke says Jesus was doing and teaching in the book of Luke and now in the book of Acts, all that he is going to continue to do and teach, but he will be doing it and teaching it from heaven by his Holy Spirit and through his apostles. Jesus is active. Jesus is living. Jesus is working. Jesus is the one building his church. But he does it from his seat at the right hand of the power and majesty on high. This is a transition book, a point of significant transition in this book. Jesus has run his earthly race. He is now passing his baton to the disciples, who will then pass it on to others. And the disciples are going to be told, look, you cannot run this in your own strength, and therefore Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high, and when they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, as he says, not many days from now. If I were to ask you, 
If you were aware of the transfiguration, you'd probably say yes. I remember that. That was when Jesus shone forth his glory in front of a few of his disciples. And there was Moses and there was Elijah there. If I were to ask you what were they talking about, could you tell me? Well, Luke 9 tells us precisely what they were talking about. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. What were they talking about? They were talking about the ascension. If I were to ask you where Jesus is now, if I were to ask you what he's doing, I think most of you would likely give a pretty theologically sound answer. I think you could tell me. It would be well-reasoned and it would be biblical. If I were to ask you how did he assume that ministry in heaven, most of you would mention the incarnation. You would say he came, he came down in the form of a human being and he, he came as a child and he was born of the Virgin Mary and you would tell me then that he lived this sinless life and that he was crucified, delivered over for our sins and that he rose from the dead. You would probably tell me that because Jesus rose from the dead that it is for that reason that he now ministers to his people from heaven where he rules and from which he will one day return and some might even mention the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us. And all of that, of course, would be correct so far as it goes. But something is missing in the way that we talk about the work of Christ. There is an event that we should think about much more often than we do. The historic Protestant understanding of Christ's work is, it's divided really into two parts, his humiliation and then his exaltation. Christ's humiliation spans from his incarnation when he took on flesh to his crucifixion and even his burial. All of that redemptive work speaks of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ who came as the God-man who is our mediator between God and us. His exaltation, as theologians speak about it, begins with his resurrection and then his ascension. And as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, a term that maybe you're not all that familiar with, his session, where he sits at the Father's right hand. And then, of course, his return in glory. Of his work in exaltation, it's Arguably the most neglected doctrine regarding his exaltation, and that is the ascension. And I think that's understandable for a number of reasons. I don't know how often you think about it or how often that word comes out of your mouth or even passes through your mind. Luke, here's one reason why I think this is the case. Luke is the only gospel writer who deals specifically with the ascension. He's the only one who gives us detail and records the actual event. He does it at the end of Luke. He does it at the beginning of Acts. There are a number of references to the ascended Christ, obviously, in the New Testament. But the fact 
of his ascension is often overlooked because the emphasis in the epistles in particular is about the ministry that he conducts from heaven and not so much how he got there. I also think it may be the most often neglected because it simply gets overshadowed by the resurrection. You hear the word conflated a lot now in our culture. It's a good word. The resurrection and the ascension often get conflated. They get thrown into the same box as if somehow the day Jesus came out of the tomb was the same day he blasted off for heaven. That is not the case, but it sounds like it's the case if you're reading the end of the book of Luke without reading the beginning of the book of Acts. The ascension may also be overlooked because it's, it's given very brief treatment and frankly, in terms that are rather unremarkable. It's kind of given as a matter of fact, which is super weird when you think about it because it's, it's not every day that you see somebody defy gravity, right? This is not an insignificant doctrine. This is not Jesus merely hitching a ride back to heaven and God wanted to make sure we knew how he got there. This is an important doctrine. It's a definitive doctrine. It's intentional. Without the ascension, the whole thing, frankly, is incomplete. The focus was never simply coming to earth or simply the cross or even simply the resurrection. That's not the end of the story. The story continues and the story is still continuing. He who has descended to earth has now ascended back to heaven. And that head that was crowned with thorns has been now crowned with glory. And it is vital that we know it. And how did that happen? And why is it important that it happened? Can you imagine with me for just a moment, what if Jesus, you know he's been coming and going. And how important those 40 days must have been to to his followers. Can you imagine what it was like for his mother Mary if, if her last vision of her beloved son was that of a, of a bruised and battered body on the cross? Think of what it must have been like had, or would have been like had Peter been left with the final glimpse he had of the Lord Jesus Christ was as the Lord was leaving and Peter had just denied him and that cock crows and Jesus catches his eyes. Can you imagine what it would have been like? How about for Thomas who just would not believe unless he, he touched and he saw? These 40 days have been critical for Christ's followers. And here Jesus has been appearing to them over this period of 40 days and what if Jesus just stopped appearing. They saw him on Tuesday. They ate fish with him. They had that great catch where they tried to pull the the net in over the boat, but they couldn't, so they had to just drag it to shore, and they counted all of those fish. And then they parted ways, and Jesus said nothing about going back to heaven. He just stopped showing up. Wouldn't it have been rather unsettling if his appearances just kind of, maybe he showed up again in January for 
for something, a New Year's, New Year's party, and, and then uh, maybe again on Valentine's Day in February, but then you get to, you know, what happens in March? I don't know. You, uh, St. Patrick's Day, and Jesus does not show up. And then he doesn't show up for Mother's Day or Father's Day, and all of a sudden he's just gone, and they want to know, John, have you seen him? No. Peter, how about you? How important this event is, how merciful of the Lord Jesus Christ to appear to his people, how gracious, how kind of him, again, how thoughtful. Do you ever come across any event in the Lord's life when he's not mindful of those around him? He's not insensitive. You think about some of the most powerful kings, the most powerful leaders that you've ever known on planet Earth and how dull they are, how elevated their sense of self and, 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 and how, how little they think about all the peons who pay for their salary. Jesus is not that way. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is kind. This beloved, is another expression of the kindness of Christ as he gathers his own together and he, he wants to give them a formal farewell. And this, frankly, is a vindication. This is his glory on display. This is the foundation for our blessed hope. How important is this doctrine that we just don't even really consider much? He had some final words to speak to them before he bid them farewell. We'll pick those up beginning in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way you have watched him go up into heaven. Lord, we ask for your help as we come to your word by your Holy Spirit who illumines all truth to our minds, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Help us to see that we might honor you aright. Amen. We're just going to break this text down into three parts. We'll call it the question, the commission, and the ascension. The question, the commission, and the ascension. First, the question in verse 6 when they had come together, that is, again, Jesus and his disciples, they were asking him, saying, 
Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The Lord has gathered all of his disciples again together on the Mount of Olives. We see that in verse 12. Luke tells us that they're near Bethany, which was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and they're there for a bit of instruction before he heads back to heaven. And there's much that needs to be developed in their understanding of the kingdom. These men needed a great deal of explanation. As I said, he's been explaining this topic to them by way of a 40-day master class. And that was in addition to all that he'd already taught them while he was with them over the previous three years. And here, before Jesus departs, they ask him a question about the timing of the kingdom. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, many commentators are very critical of Jesus at this point. Many good commentators are critical of Jesus at this point. They believe the disciples are still demonstrating profound ignorance, and some of them make it sound as if the men are even unintelligent. I mean, after all, they've had the best teacher to have ever walked the planet who spent 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God And somehow, in the minds of these commentators, these men fail to understand that the kingdom has nothing to do with Israel as a national and political entity any longer. I'm not going to launch into a message about the kingdom. I told you that already, but I do want you to mark down four things. I want you to note four things as we begin to build this out a little bit here in this text. Number one, the disciples... After 40 days of instruction about the kingdom from the very king himself, these same disciples still expect a restoration of the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Israel had been a kingdom in the past. They had seen that kingdom divided and then fall apart because of their sin and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But somehow in the minds of these men, just as Israel had been a kingdom in the past, so Israel would be a kingdom in the future, and that was to be restored to them. Number two, they did not see the kingdom as present. They were still anticipating something that is future. They're wondering what, if now is the time, and we'll get to the reason why they thought this, but if now is the time of this restoration, they did not believe that it had been restored already. Number three, they also understood that Jesus, the Messiah, would bring this restoration. Don't miss that. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Fundamentally, the kingdom of God comes when God brings the kingdom. It is not something, though we are involved in it, that ultimately men bring about. It is something that the Lord Jesus Christ himself brings about. He is the restorer of the kingdom. And number four, and this is as important as the other three, but Jesus does nothing here to correct anything. except them for asking 
about the timing of these things. In other words, he doesn't reject the premise of their question that the kingdom will one day be restored to Israel. He did not fault their expectation. He did not fault their expectation that he would bring it to pass and that he would bring it to pass at some time. The question just was, is now that time? Now, one would think at this point, wouldn't you, having spent so much time trying to clarify the kingdom to these men, that if they were still lacking in their understanding about these things, that Jesus somehow would put the ascension on hold and say, I'm going to have to take another week. (laughs) You men, you still don't get it. And we need to go back over this again. You men are too naturalistic in your thinking. You are too unspiritual in your thinking. You need to drop this expectation that Israel has anything really to do with this kingdom moving forward, that somehow your your nationalistic sense, your nationalism, your nationalistic pride has has to understand that all of these things now are going to be fulfilled in a whole nother way. You need to re-examine, and I need to redefine everything that was said in the Old Testament. Let's go back to the letter A. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he gently admonishes these men by saying these words, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. Men, you do not have authority over these things. The Father has authority over these things. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, writes these words, quote, We shall see that throughout Acts, the role of Israel remains remains, and that the hope that is preached is the natural extension of Jewish expectation. The divinely promised hope of restoration. The new era did not remove hope for Israel or replace the nation in God's plan. What does change in terms of normal Jewish anticipation is that the is an emphasis on the scope of the blessing. In other words, what these men had wrong was they, they were just thinking too small about this kingdom, too narrowly about this kingdom. There's an emphasis on the scope of the blessing. Acts will show us that concern for Israel alone is not the point of the gospel. The message will go to all and is for all because Jesus is Lord of all. Frankly, if they had had insight into the Abrahamic covenant, they would have had insight into the fact that it was through Abraham that what? All families... All nations would be blessed. So why is it that they ask, is now the time? Well, as I've said, one, they knew from Old Testament prophecies that the kingdom would, in fact, be restored to Israel. They believed that. Secondly, they had a very earnest expectation that that everlasting covenant that was promised to Abraham, that covenant that was promised to David, that forever king who would would rule over a forever kingdom, that God would be faithful to all of that. And they knew full well from Old Testament prophecy that the kingdom and its coming 
would be accompanied by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And again, we'll develop this further, but you can go to Isaiah 32 or 44 or 59, or you can go to Ezekiel 36 and 37 and 39, or you can go to Joel 2, or I could give you a whole host more. But all of those passages speak of the fact that God would one day be pouring out his spirit and that the future hope of Israel was utterly dependent upon that. Now you remember that Jesus has spoken, hasn't he? Back in verse 5, he told them that soon they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I believe that is the trigger that gets these men thinking If the Spirit's going to be poured out, well, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, they were not wrong in thinking that that kingdom would, in fact, be restored, but what they didn't understand was there was a whole lot of stuff that needed to be done before that kingdom would come. So Jesus does not answer their question directly except to tell them that the timing of things is not for them to know. He puts them off. He says, look, men, the chronology of the restoration of Israel belongs in the sovereign authority of the Father. It is above your pay grade. It is beyond your control. They had other business that they needed to be attending to. And that leads us from the question to the commission. And that we can pick up in verse 8. The commission. He says to them, but, and that word is important, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. This is the commissioning of Jesus before his ascension. And that word but confronts their focus. He's saying to them, look, not that. Don't be focused on that. That's not yours, the timing of restoration. But this is where your focus is. Your focus is to be on gospel witness. You have a different task. You're not to be all tied up about when it's happening and all the signs and all of that stuff. No, you need to be focused and fixed on this. There is a mission I am assigning to you. In other words, instead of being focused on things that are beyond their control, the disciples have work to do, and it's a work for which, frankly, they are insufficient to accomplish. They're to bear witness for Christ and the gospel. And he tells them, he gives them, if you will, a map for how this is going to go. He says it's going to begin here in Jerusalem, then it's going to go to Judea and to Samaria, and then it's going to go to the ends of the earth. It's going all the way out the entire inhabited world. Listen to the language of Isaiah 49. Here Yahweh is speaking to his suffering servant. He says, I, Yahweh, will give you, Jesus, as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach, here's our phraseology, to the end of the earth. That's why in many of your translations you'll find that in all caps. 
how is Jesus, right? This is a reasonable question. How is Jesus going to accomplish this work of the gospel going out, the light going out to the ends of the earth, if in fact Jesus now is going to leave them? Well, the answer is found by Jesus assigning that task that the Father had given to him to his followers. He says, you are my witnesses. And that language also comes right out of Isaiah. You can jot the passages down. We're not going to take the time this morning. Isaiah 43.10, Isaiah 43.12, and Isaiah 44.8. You are my witnesses, is said over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, Israel was a light to the nations, and the people were really to, to come and see. The people were to come to Israel to see God's people who were marked by holiness. They were marked, they were radically different than the nations around them. They were a light and the people were to come and see. But now there is a transition where the people of God are being told by God to go and tell. And that is the mission that is laid before the disciples and the apostles. And that is the mission, frankly, beloved, that is laid before all of us. All of Christ's followers are to take the witness stand and to bear truthful testimony to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the light is spread. By the words that you speak and the life that you lead, you are called, as these disciples are called, to be witnesses. In Greek, martures. Martures, what, what does that sound like? Right. This is how the word comes into English, right? These people who preached Christ paid for that message dearly with their lives. And so by way of association, martures became associated with the suffering and even death for one's faith. This is what we are called to. Right from the very beginning, a theology of suffering begins to, to arise in, in the book of Acts. Jesus suffered, and he delivered through his suffering. Then we're told, as Peter said, he left us an example, what, to follow in his footsteps, who while suffering uttered no threats, who while being reviled did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Beloved, here, here's some some hard news to hear, but Jesus suffered and we are called to stand in his shoes. He is the head of the body. We are the body. And if we live faithfully, shining the light for the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be persecution that will inevitably come to us. It may not look like getting stoned and left for dead. It may not come by way of a cross for you, a literal cross but it will come to you. The reproach of Christ will come. It may be rejection by friends and family. It may be being thought a fool. It comes in a lot of ways. It may be the loss of a job. All of us, martures, for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So they're going to take this word out in concentric circles, like throwing a rock into a pond. Those waves are going to spread all the way out to the banks. They're going to preach the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the assignment, this commission, and Jesus then is going to depart from them. And that brings us to the ascension in verse 9. After he had said these things, stop there. What things? Well, certainly the commission that he had given them, but I want you to flip back to the book of Luke and I want you to see this with your own eyes. There was more said than that. There was more said than this conversation about the Holy Spirit, about waiting in Jerusalem, about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Notice in verse 50, he says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened while he was blessing them that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus gives a blessing to his people. And I don't know how you think about that. I do know this, that whatever Jesus speaks, he speaks with divine authority. I do know this, that whatever he speaks comes true. If I were to desire a blessing from anyone in this life, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I don't want you to miss the tenderness of this scene that somehow, you know, Jesus just sort of left for heaven. No, no. This is, a, this is a farewell like so many farewells, unlike so many farewells in a lot of ways, but like so many farewells that you've enjoyed and, 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 and suffered sorrow from in your own life as you think back. Here he is near Bethany, that village where Martha and Mary lived, his friends, where Lazarus was raised where he spent much of his time during the Passion Week, where he often set himself apart to pray. This is where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Here, in fact, is where Zechariah 14.4 tells us that Jesus will return again. This is significant. And it is here that he lifts his hands to bless his people. These are the last words of Christ. We treasure those last words on the cross, don't we? It is finished. And I wish, and in the wisdom of God, the Spirit did not lead Luke to write down the blessing. How I would have loved to have heard all that was spoken at this point. But again, Jesus' tenderness And his considerateness, these are no mere formal words. This is no empty statement at the end. Whatever his blessing was, they knew full well that he meant it, that it was sincere, and and they knew that that blessing would, in fact, come to them. The blessing leads to the ascension. 
Note that Luke 24, 51 tells us it was while he was still blessing them. I love that. He, he begins to go up and it, he isn't finished. <laughs> I think he finished saying all that he intended to say, but it, it's while he was going up, there was no time at the end of this thing for a final embrace. Or he just is, is taken up. If you go back to Luke or Acts 1 and verse 9, it tells us he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received them out of their sight. You know that a cloud in the Bible often depicts the glory of God. You remember the, the glory cloud coming down and covering the tabernacle and the glory was so intense that it prevented Moses from even entering. You remember the dramatic scene at the transfiguration when that cloud came down, Charles was talking about it this morning. Here's Peter talking away about all the stuff that he planned to do for God. And, and God just interrupts him and says, look, this, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, enough chapping, Pete. Listen to him. And then this cloud comes down and envelops them. And it terrified the disciples. You know that Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. And when that happens, everyone will see it. Brothers and sisters, put yourself there again. This, this ascension cloud is not, is not just a, a weather event. This is not some sort of natural deal. And Jesus thought, well, that looks convenient. This... This is a chariot from heaven. This is a moment of great glory. It speaks to the glory of the Son of God. It speaks to the reception and acceptance of the Father that he would send this limousine to pick up his Son. We see it from time to time, don't we? You, you, you're thumbing through channels and all of a sudden, here's some stretch limo and some dignitary or teeny bopper, whatever, starlet, and everybody's trying to get near and to get pictures and to get... That is nothing, man. That is nothing compared to this moment. Incredible. It had to be just remarkable. Not just the fact of his upgoing, but... The glory of it, the stunning, the awesome nature. We are here, and particularly in the spring and the fall, those of you who are fortunate enough to view either east or west and you have a view, you see those clouds. In the fall, when they're, when they're, they've got the sun coming through them and you've got the pink and the, just the splendor of it, and you think about texts like these, what must this cloud have been like? Awe-inspiring. Utterly captivating. I saw a couple of weeks ago, maybe you saw that, the SpaceX had that launch of the biggest thing ever to go up in the sky. Yeah, whatever. The, the best laid plans of men, right? The thing got up there and they had to blow it up because it wasn't going to make it. But, but still, the, the TV showed these people and the TV tuned in to watch it. And we, we what? We get glued, all of us born after, what was it, 60-something when the, the first moon land, you know, landing went up. We know what it is to be glued to that TV and watching that thing launching up. That's fascinating. 
We learned it when we were kids, just watching a helium balloon go up into the sky, and we would watch it travel and travel and travel. Do you still see it? Again, nothing compared to this. Jesus' followers here are craning their necks, and they are watching in awe as as Jesus, their Lord and Master, is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And it may have been that the cloud itself, the language has this sense of this cloud receiving him. It may have just completely enveloped him to where they couldn't see him any longer. Whatever the case, they couldn't see him. And they were left alone until they weren't. A couple of angels show up and they give the disciples an eschatological refresher. They also are sent from heaven and here they, as, as verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, that's supposed to grab your attention. You thought that was something. I got another thing on the docket for you. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. It's only been about 40 days since they had seen these two men. You remember them at the tomb? A couple of angelic messengers. And they pose this question. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? That's a dumb question. That is, really, it's a disappointing question for two angels that have been around this many years. They're glorious beings. They're exalted beings. They're, 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 we would tremble before them. I mean, here, here, why do they ask questions like this? This is so characteristic of the type of questions they ask. Have you ever thought about it? Here they are with Mary Magdalene who's lost the one who delivered her from seven demons and was so central to her world. She just loved Christ and he was crucified and he was buried and she's coming back to to love him and to minister to him and to anoint him and to get that body uh, all taken care of so that he can rest in peace. And she comes to the tomb and can't find him and she falls apart. She is emotionally She's sobbing, she's weeping, and here are these guys. Woman, why are you crying? Of course, the other women also come, and the angels pose another question to them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, Because he is dead, right? That's their thinking. What is with these angelic questions? They're the kinds of questions that angels ask, apparently, and, and, and they're trying to make a point. That's the point. Woman, why are you weeping? This is the most joyful morning of your entire life. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Because he's alive. Not dead. 
Men of Galilee, why, why do you stand looking toward heaven? And I think that implies that there may be more behind this question than we initially think. I'm not sure it's rhetorical. I don't know that it's as mundane as it appears. Of course they're gazing intently into heaven. What would any rational being do in a context like this? Of course. But you see, the question is designed to get their head out of the clouds and to get it back to the task at hand. I think it's probably very likely that even now, at the departure of their beloved Lord, there is some sorrow in the heart of these who see Jesus go. They know it's right, they know it's good, but, but he's leaving. And these angels, no, no sooner had Jesus departed from them than these angels come in and they remind the disciples of the very things that Jesus had told them over and over and over and over again. I am coming back. I go to prepare a place for you. Reason with me, Jesus says. If I go to prepare a place for you, doesn't it make all the sense in the world that I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you may be also? Yes, that's reasonable. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and that's a conjunction, and I will come to you. Beloved, does your heart swell at the thought that Christ is going to return? Are you eager for the day and the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love that thought? Yeah. It should be on our minds all the time. We should be encouraging one another with these words. Are you sick and facing the potential of going to heaven before you expected? Be of good courage. He will come for you. And he will take you to be where he is. And are you nervous about your son who happens to be in the military and people can die in the military? Yes, they can, but if that son is in Christ, understand this, his home is in heaven and Jesus will most surely raise him up. And the Bible would teach us that we can even have the expectation that perhaps today is the day that Christ will come to take us to himself. So, beloved, let us rejoice in this reality that Christ's going up is so that he might come down, that he might take us up to be with him. Up, down, up, down. I love it. It's good. I don't know if you ever worked in the nursery, but oftentimes 
you know, we, we say when someone hands us their child, something happens, you know what it is. Some nice mother who's raised that child, fed that child, changed that child, tucks that child into bed with a nice prayer and a kiss on the cheek, comes to me and says, here's my child <laughs> in the nursery. And that child says, no, you don't. And they begin to cry and their arms reach out and their mama, and it, the panic begins to set in. And what do the nursery workers say? Your mom will come back. It's only a matter of time, but she'll be back for you. And not immediately, but in time, that child does what? Okay. And they settle in and then go play with their blocks and eat their graham crackers and whatever else. He is coming back. And it's just as they watched him go up. And when he comes back, the whole world will see him in his glory. And the only question you can ask is, how do you respond to something like that? Well, they worship. And I would take you back to Luke one more time for further insight. into this. Last chapter, verse 52. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they, that is the disciples, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem, note this, with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Christ's life begins in condescension as he comes and a blessing is given in the temple, isn't it? And here he is at his glorification going up and again we have another group of people blessing him in the temple. He began life in heaven and then he came to earth and now he leaves earth and he goes back to heaven, king of kings and lord of lords. And these, his followers can do nothing other than worship him. They, they head back to Jerusalem after worshiping him to await the outpouring of the Spirit in obedience. They go back to Jerusalem to wait. And they do so, it says, with great joy and with their hearts just full of praise. They are irrepressible in their worship. They just keep going and going and going and going to the temple because this, this thing has consumed them. You'll note there are no tears at the ascension. There is only astonishment and wonder and joy. Reminded me of those words to his disciples as he was speaking to them by way of preparation in John 16, 22. Therefore you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will will take your joy away from you. 
These folks are convinced, and no one will take their joy from them. They had joy upon joy upon joy for all they knew. All of a sudden, all the pieces of Christ's work from the incarnation to the crucifixion to the resurrection and now to the ascension and return of the Lord Jesus Christ, all these puzzle pieces are are coming together, and it is clear to them now, and they're so captivated with Christ and with the mission that Christ has given to them that they just can do nothing other than be continually among God's people and declaring God's praise. Now, the significance of these things is really far-reaching, and they're wonderful to contemplate. But we don't have time this morning except that I will give you one as we come to the Lord's table. Why is the ascension so important, so worthy of our attention? Well, number one, the ascension demonstrates the Lord's victory over sin, death, and Satan. And therefore, our victory in him. The ascension demonstrates the Lord's victory over sin and death and and Satan. The ascension, if you will, people often speak of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was a vindication of Christ, that it demonstrated, right, that he had in fact lived the righteous life that God demanded, that he died a, a, a death in the place of all he came to save that was in fact full payment, paid in full, stamped. We are justified. And all of that was declared in the resurrection, and here is a further statement of the vindication of Christ. Just as the resurrection vindicated him, so this was proof that Jesus was all that he claimed to be, and he in fact did and could do all that he came to do. And in humiliation, he comes down from heaven, and now he is exalted, John 17, 5, to the glory he had before the world was And he has vindicated, he has brought this thing full circle. He came, he conquered, he went home. And the ascension is a clear demonstration of the Father's acceptance of the Son's sacrifice for our sins. And my friend, if that can't get you excited about the ascension, I don't know what can. If Jesus is not ascended, your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not ascended, you have no assurance of going to heaven ever. But Christ is ascended. And our salvation is sure. Because he has ascended and entered heaven, yes, being restored to his former glory, but he has ascended and entered into heaven, into the holy place made without hands for you. And the Bible says so. Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for you. You see, here's the point. This is the benefit, is that his entrance ensures your entrance. 
His welcome is your welcome. The Lord Jesus Christ punched your eternal ticket to glory. And his acceptance with the Father has guaranteed the acceptance of all who have hoped in him. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. They teach us that we have a glorious inheritance because God raised Christ from the dead. That's resurrection language. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's ascension language. Far above, not somewhat above, not just made it, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he just can't keep stacking on terms. He's got to bring it to a close. And he simply says this, that all things now are in subjection under his feet. All things will be brought unto him and subjected to him. I hope the ascension holds more real estate in your mind and in your heart. And I hope next week as we keep diving into all the fruit of the ascension, it will lay hold of you even more. But I want you to set your meditation on those things as we come to the table that Christ's acceptance in heaven guarantees your acceptance in heaven if you are in him.